Hi, welcome to episode seven of the Essex Court Chambers 10 in 10 podcast series. This week, we're going to be discussing a chancery insolvency case, BAT and Sakana. Uh, that occupied many weeks of the Chancery Division's time and the Court of Appeal in 2016 to 2018. I'm delighted to be joined by Richard Millett, QC, and Anna Dilnot to discuss that case. Richard Millett needs no introduction. He is a senior Silicon Chambers <laughs> with extensive experience. <laughs> he laughs at me all the time. Needs no introduction, only he appears to. <laughs> Richard Millett needs no introduction. He is a senior Silicon Chambers with extensive offshore experience. He is currently lead counsel to the Grenfell Tower Public Inquiry, co-author of Millett and Andrews on the Law of Guarantees, and sits as a Deputy High Court Judge in the Chancery Division. The legal directories describe Richard as urbane and charming, very bright and fast-moving, with fantastic oral presentation. Anna Dilnot is a senior junior in Chambers with extensive experience in civil fraud, The legal directories describe her as commercially savvy, quick to get to the issues, and a real fighter in court. She has a superb legal mind and is user-friendly and prepared to roll up her sleeves. I'm delighted to be joined by Richard and Anna to discuss this case. Perhaps we can start, Richard, by explaining the background to this litigation. Yes, thank you, Stephen. The Sequana case concerned the payment of two dividends by a wholly owned subsidiary called AWA to its parent company called Sequana. One dividend was paid in December 2008 and the second dividend in May 2009, which the court called the the May dividend. The dividends were paid by way of a set-off of an intercompany debt owed by the parent to the subsidiary. At the time that the dividends were authorised, the subsidiary had ceased to trade and its only liability was a contingent one that it had in relation to environmental pollution to the lower Fox River in Wisconsin. That pollution had been caused by a business that it had historically acquired and long since disposed of. In short, AWA was liable to indemnify another company, BAT, for the clean-up costs. The company had taken out insurance in relation to the contingent liability and the directors took the view that even after making provision for the difference between the value of those policies and their best estimate of the liability, there was a surplus that could be distributed to the parent to reduce by way of set off the amount owed by the parent to it. A dividend of some 443 million euros was declared out of distributable profits generated by a capital reduction. That required the directors to sign a solvency statement. The dividend itself was the dividend declared in December 2008, namely the December dividend. The following year, the view was reached by the board that the insurance policies were sufficient to cover the contingent liability, such that the provision in AWA's accounts relating to the contingent pollution liability was reduced to zero. That meant that there was an additional amount which had been previously set aside as a provision, that could now be distributed to the parent, again to reduce, by way of set-off, the amount owed by the parent to the subsidiary. So a second dividend was declared and paid in May 2009 of the sum of euros £138 The effect of reducing the debt owed by the parent company was that, to the extent of the reduction, the claim of the subsidiary to payment by the parent could no longer be applied in satisfaction of the subsidiary's clean-up costs 
and obligations in the event that the insurance policies proved insufficient. BAT issued a claim for relief under Section 423 of the Insolvency Act 1986 against both Sequana and AWA. In it, BAT alleged that the dividends were transactions liable to be unwound as they prejudiced the interests of creditors. AWA was sold to a third party and subsequently brought its own claim against its directors on the basis that the dividends were not properly paid under Part 23 of the Companies Act 2006. The grounds for that were that the solvency statement given by the directors could not properly have been given. Furthermore, it alleged that even if the solvency statement was properly given, the dividends were paid out in breach of duty owed by the directors to the company because they contravened what is known as the rule in Westminster Safetyware and Dodd, namely that if a company is insolvent, a director has to have regard to the interests of creditors. Those claims were subsequently assigned by AWA to another company, BTI, which was incorporated in order to pool liability for the pollution cleanup costs, and a funding agreement provided that any recoveries in the Section 423 claim would be paid to BTI. The funding agreement was entered into in the aftermath, in the light of, AWA's insolvency. The case came at trial before Mrs Justice Rose, and she heard it over a period of 32 days. She decided, in a lengthy and penetrating judgment, that the solvency statement had properly made by the directors, and the computation of the provision for the clean-up costs was reasonable. She also decided that there had been no manipulation of the figures, and the contingent liabilities were adequately disclosed in AWA's accounts. That finding was not appealed to the Court of Appeal. So, the backdrop to the other findings of Mrs Justice Rose and the decision of the Court of Appeal was that the two dividends, the December dividend and the May dividend, were both declared and paid by AWA properly as a matter of company law. Thanks for that, Richard. Uh, perhaps you could just set out the main issues, both at first instance and on appeal. Yes, certainly. Um, the claimants, BTI and BAT, had alleged before Mrs Justice Rose and the Court of Appeal that even if the dividends were properly paid as a matter of company law, then first, the payment of dividends was nonetheless a breach of the director's fiduciary duties owed to the company under Section 172 of the Companies Act, namely, and principally, the duty to promote the success of the company. That was because, they argued, there was great uncertainty over the level of contingent liability, and at the time that the dividends were paid, the directors were bound to consider the interests of the creditors as well as Sequana, its sole shareholder. So the principal question for the court was the point in time that the duty to creditors arose. And the critical question is, or was, how close to insolvency does the company have to be before the duty to creditors arises or intrudes? The second principal issue was this, whether the dividends contravened Section 423 of the Insolvency Act 1986 because they constituted a transaction at an undervalue entered into for the purposes of putting assets beyond the reach of BAT or otherwise prejudicing its interests. Now, the main issues there were, one, whether a dividend could be said to be a transaction for the purposes of the section, two, whether a dividend was a gift or characterised by an absence of consideration or otherwise a transaction at an undervalue, and three, whether AWA had the requisite statutory purpose in carrying out the transaction, i.e. to put assets beyond the reach of a person who is making or may at some time make a claim against it 
or otherwise prejudicing the interests of such a person? And finally, what remedy was available? Anna, I think, will now introduce the point about company directors, duties to creditors, and that's the point which occupied the vast bulk of Lord Justice David Richards's judgment. Thank you, Richard. In Sequana, uh, AWA alleged that its former board of directors, so those individuals which had approved the dividends, had acted in breach of duty. Uh, the breach was not, as it had been alleged at first instance, a contravention of Part 23 of the Companies Act, but the breach was in failing to have proper regard to the interests of creditors, which it said existed where a proposal involved a real as opposed to remote risk to creditors. A common law obligation to have regard to the interests of creditors was first declared to exist, at least in England and Wales, by the decision of the Court of Appeal in West Mercia, Software and Dot in 1988. With the codification of directors' duties under the Companies Act 2006, that common law duty was preserved by Section 172, which is the well-known duty to promote the success of the company for the benefit of its members as a whole. By subsection 3 of that section, that duty is made subject to any rule of law requiring directors to consider or act in the interests of creditors. Now, the specific duty in West Mercia was that directors of an insolvent company so a company which has actually reached a point of insolvency, are required to have enhanced regard to the interests of creditors as a class. As a corollary of that, shareholders cannot ratify a breach of that duty. And the duty exists because on an insolvency, the creditors, rather than the shareholders, hold the primary economic interest in the company's assets. But it's also important to note that the duty is owed to the company and not to the creditors. Moreover, No, if you like, new duty is created upon insolvency, but rather the duties already owed are altered, such that creditors' interests are to be taken into account. Now, in relation to the content of the duty, uh, it has never been entirely clear on the authorities what the rule requires when shareholders' interests compete with those of creditors. Uh, It is unclear whether creditors' interests have primacy or whether there is some form of balancing act required by the board. Some cases have suggested that whether creditors' interests have primacy depends on whether the company is actually insolvent or somewhere within the vicinity. At first instance, rather, in Sequana, it was at least common ground that whether or not the duty requires the interests of creditors to be placed above those of shareholders, the nature of the duty does not vary according to the degree of risk of insolvency that has arisen and the Court of Appeal did not take issue with that proposition. Now, in the Court of Appeal, while the courts did not decide what the duty involved and whether it required the board to give priority to the interests of creditors, David Richards, uh, Lord Justice David Richards, said that once the duty is engaged, it is hard to see that creditors' interests can be anything other than paramount. That being the case, whilst it may still be possible because it's not been finally decided that when a duty is engaged, the board is to balance the interests of shareholders and creditors. Uh, In view of the Court of Appeal's comments, it is overwhelmingly likely that the court will consider the interests of creditors have primacy where the duty is engaged. The next topic uh, considered by the, the Court of Appeal in relation to the West Mercia duty was when the duty is engaged. In West Mercia, it was decided that the duty was engaged in the case of actual insolvency. Uh, And that is the approach taken in certain other jurisdictions, such as, for example, Delaware, 
uh, which places importance entrepreneurial activity over the risk of insolvency and its effect on creditors. A number of the earlier English authorities found the duty engaged at some point prior to, but on the way to insolvency. But the exact point in time is a matter on which the authorities did not speak with one voice. For example, in uh, the well-known Supreme Court case of Bilsa and Nazir, the Supreme Court said, Obita, that it applied when a company was insolvent or bordering on insolvency. Various other formulations have been used at first instance, such as where a company is insolvent or of doubtful solvency, where it is of marginal insolvency, and where it is on the verge of insolvency, and it is the creditor's money which is at risk. At first instance in Sequana, the directors argued that the duty wasn't engaged until the company was very close to insolvency. The claimants, on the other hand, argued it was enough if there was a real as opposed to a remote risk of insolvency. Uh, Mrs Justice Rose found that in previous cases where the duty had been engaged, the company was either insolvent or close to collapse. A test of real risk of insolvency, that being the test sought by the claimants, was lower than a test of the company being on the verge of insolvency or in a precarious or parlous financial state, and the authorities simply did not support that lower standard. Mrs Justice Rose was also clearly concerned that by applying a real risk of insolvency test, that would require directors to have to take account of creditors rather than shareholders' interests when running the business over an extended period of time. For example, in the context of a provision on a balance sheet in respect of a long-term liability, the lower threshold may result in the creditor's interest duty applying for a long period of time. Indeed, the entire period over which there was a risk that there would be insufficient assets to meet the liability. That would inhibit normal and healthy commercial activity and result in companies being managed too defensively. The Court of Appeal unanimously upheld Mrs Justice Rose. It said the real prospect of insolvency test was too low and significantly lower than being on the verge of insolvency or likely to become insolvent. There was a risk the lower threshold would unduly chill entrepreneurial risk activity, a risk taking by honest directors, a risk which Parliament had been alive to when drafting the creditor protections in the Companies Act 2006. Creditors can always be assumed to be taking some risk when dealing with companies, and it is for them to know that that is the case and to bargain for security where appropriate. Furthermore, the Court of Appeal wanted to test where the interests of creditors were taken into account where the company was not insolvent, but insolvency was nonetheless likely to occur and decisions taken from that point may prejudice creditors in insolvency. Uh, it therefore decided that the preferable formulation was when the directors know or should know that a company was insolvent and likely to become insolvent means uh, more probable than not. And that is the point at which the duty is engaged. So does the Court of Appeal judgment in Sakana establish a clear test or a workable starting point for ascertaining when the duty is engaged? In my view, I think it is a workable test, and it's far more workable than the previous uncertainty which existed. Plus, it's important for it to be workable because ordinary people in business and all types and sizes of business have to be able to understand and apply the test. And whether insolvency is likely, i.e. you know, there's more than 50% chance of it, is workable. And moreover, in my view, it's fair as between shareholders and creditors. I mean, lastly, it's, it's the sort of test that the court is amply used to applying and ought not to create a great deal of practice and application in practice. I had a question, um, because I may have mis- 
uh, read David Richards's judgment, but was there any argument in the case about whether or not uh, some parallel should be drawn uh, with Section 214, wrongful trading, and in particular, subsection 2b, which provides or establishes liability on the part of directors to contribute for wrongful trading as a remedy in circumstances where he or she knew or ought to have concluded that there was no reasonable prospect that the company would avoid going into insolvent liquidation. It it seems to me that no reasonable prospect of avoiding going into insolvent liquidation is a much more stringent test than the likely to be insolvent test for the purposes of the common law uh, obligations which would arise to creditors, which would be owed by directors. While it's an interesting point, it doesn't appear, certainly from the reports of the case that I've seen, that it was something which was argued. Uh, certainly it wasn't argued before uh, the Court of Appeal. But I agree, the test under Section 212 for wrongful trading is going to be more onerous than a, a, a sort of more likely than not 50-50 or over 50% test. So that's the first aspect of the case, the duty to consider interests of creditors. Let's move on, shall we, to the other half of the case, the Section 423 claim in respect of dividends. Richard, could you set out the background to that, please? Yes, thank you, Stephen. The basic elements of a claim under Section 423 of the Insolvency Act 1986 are that the court can set aside transactions which are entered into at an undervalue with the intention of defrauding creditors. Now, a transaction intended to defraud creditors occurs where a person, one, makes a gift to another person or otherwise enters into a transaction with another on terms that provide for him to receive no consideration or, and there's a second part which we don't need to trouble with, or enters into a transaction with another person for a consideration the value of which in money or money's worth is significantly less than the value in money or money's worth of the consideration provided by himself. Now, although the section is headed transactions defrauding creditors, in fact, no dishonesty or improper conduct need be proved by a victim of the transaction beyond an intention to prejudice creditors or other claimants. The focus is therefore on the subjective intention or purpose of the person entering into the transaction, which in the Sequana case was AWA, and whether that purpose was to put assets beyond the reach of a person who is making or who may at some time make a claim against him or otherwise prejudice the interests of such a person. A current or a future creditor can apply for relief outside any formal insolvency process uh, or bankruptcy or winding up. And you don't need any bankruptcy or winding up order or administration order or anything like that before proceedings can be begun under Section 423. Uh, Under Section 425... The court has a wide discretion as to what relief should be granted or what restorative orders should be made. But in all cases, the purpose of any order must be to restore the position to what it would have been had the transaction not been entered into, with the purpose of restoring assets to the transferor in order to make them available for execution by the victims of the transaction. In Sequana, the Court of Appeal decided as follows, there is, quotes, no conceptual difficulty in an otherwise lawful dividend being paid for the purpose of putting assets beyond the reach of actual or potential claimants, and there is no difficulty in envisaging a dividend being paid for that purpose. 
the Court of Appeal rejected Sequana's arguments that Section 423 was not capable of applying to otherwise lawful dividends because, one, it would cut across the statutory regime in Part 23 of the Companies Act, where the Court of Appeal said that that was a completely separate regime to that contained in the Insolvency Act. And secondly, a dividend is not a transaction within the meaning of the section. The Court of Appeal there found that transaction for the purposes of Section 423 can include unilateral and not just bilateral transactions. In other words, reference in Section 423 to gifts. And thirdly, the argument went, a dividend is not a gift or a transaction at an undervalue because transaction is given. The Court of Appeal there agreed that a dividend was not a gift, but nonetheless the company didn't receive consideration in return, even though it's a return on investment. Now, let's just examine that last point. There is, at the heart, I think, of David Richards's decision on this point, something of a tension. BAT claimed that the dividend was a gift within the section. Now, that was a new point raised by BAT on the appeal. The point made by BAT was that shareholders have no rights to a dividend. It always lies in the discretion of the director whether or not to declare it. And only once declared does a duly declared dividend create a debt actionable by the shareholder. Lord Justice David Richards rejected that submission at paragraph 41. And he said in accepting Sukwana's argument on this point, rights are conferred on shareholders as regards dividends by the terms of issue of shares or by the articles, and it is pursuant to those rights that the shareholders receive dividends. Those rights are attached to the shares for which consideration was provided by the original holders. Dividends are both commercially and legally a return on the investment. It would be startling to categorise dividends as gifts made by a company to its shareholders, and there is no reason to think that Parliament intended the word gift to carry anything other than its usual meaning. That's what he said. So far, so sensible. But if a dividend is not a gift, then in order to come within Section 423, a lawfully declared dividend must be shown to be a transaction, and what is more, a transaction on the terms of which no consideration is received. Before we come to the consideration point, the logically prior point is, therefore, whether a dividend is a transaction at all for the purposes of the section. Sequana argued that a dividend was a unilateral act and therefore not a transaction within the section. Lord Justice David Richards rejected that argument, and in doing so, he repeated his earlier point at paragraph 41, at paragraph 61. And he said, as earlier discussed, a dividend is paid pursuant to and in accordance with the rights of the shareholders under the company's articles of association. A dividend is a return on the shareholder's investment. Shareholders may well not be involved in the decision to pay a particular dividend, and in large companies that will commonly be the case, but given the context in which they come to be paid, I regard it as too narrow to say that a dividend is a unilateral act. Again, so far, so sensible. A dividend, lawfully declared, is not a gift under Section 423, but it is a transaction thereunder. Now, where the difficulty comes is what lies between these sections of the judgment, namely whether the dividend not being by way of gift, is a transaction on terms that provide for him to receive no consideration. Now, Sequana had won on the gift point, not a gift, as a bridge to its next point, which is that it wasn't a transaction for no consideration either. But the Court of Appeal said that although a dividend was not a gift, it was not only a transaction, but it was a transaction on terms that provide for him to receive no consideration. 
in other words, within the section. Sequana relied heavily on a House of Lords tax case called Laird, in which the House had held that the declaration of a dividend was not a transaction in relation to securities for the purposes of the taxing statute, because a dividend was in essence the giving of effect to the right attached to the shares to receive a dividend if the necessary preconditions are satisfied. Lord Justice David Richards upheld Mrs Justice Rose on that point and said that there was no read across to section 423. But he went on, he said... Once it is accepted that the payment of a dividend involves the payment of funds beneficially owned by the company to its shareholders, the question under Section 423.1 remains whether the terms on which the dividend is declared or paid provide for the company to receive no consideration, quotes unquotes. In my judgment, it cannot be said that the company receives consideration for the payment of a dividend. It is not enough to say that the dividend is paid in accordance with the rights attached to the shares, where those rights are quite different from, for example, the right to receive interest payment on loan notes or the right to be considered for bonus declarations on a with profits fund. Thank you, Richard, for that very insightful exposition into the nature of dividends. Anna, if I can just turn to you on the question of relief and remedies and just ask you to summarise what the case decided and its implications on that front, please. What was decided in relation to remedies was, at first instance, there was a question over whether a payment should be made to BTI or whether the remedy should simply be the restoration of the Sequana debt. Restoration of the Sequana debt rather than any payment uh, was argued by the claimants to put BTI in the same position it would have been but for the May dividend. At first instance, Mrs Justice Rose considered it would be inequitable to limit the remedy to restoration of the debt in circumstances where recoveries made in a Section 423 claim would be paid to BTI and applied to the clean-up liability. She said that simply restoring the debt wouldn't result in BTI being paid any monies by AWA in respect of the clean-up costs. So she ordered payment by Sequana to BTI of the amount paid up to that point by BAT in respect to the clean-up, uh, that being 138.4 million US dollars. She further ordered that uh, Sequana pay such further sums as BAT might be required to pay up to the maximum amount of the second dividend. So Sequana was ordered to pay out a great deal of money uh, rather than simply be put back to the position where it owed money to its subsidiary. One of the additional arguments run by Sequana to try and reduce the amount of money it was going to have to pay over was that it said that relief should be restricted to the difference between the amount of the May dividend and the amount it could and would have paid out without an intention to prejudice creditors. Now it's very difficult to see how this could ever work as an argument because once an intention to prejudice creditors is established and you show the transaction is for no value or at an undervalue, how can the court work out what you would or could have done if you hadn't had the intention? And in a way, why should it? I suppose, theoretically, it may be possible for a party to demonstrate that even without intending to prejudice creditors, they would have paid out some lesser amount. But as a practical matter, it's very difficult to see how that could be achieved. If, for example, a person who's got, say, a million pounds and doesn't want it to go to his creditors uses that million pounds to buy a son of Ferrari as his first car, and if he's made bankrupt, uh, he wants to ensure that his creditors at least won't get the Ferrari. So the question becomes, how would you prove this counterfactual? And that's where Sequana came unstuck on this argument. And the 
Court of Appeal rejected it out of hand. The Court of Appeal declined to decide or express a view on whether it was required to or might adopt a counterfactual approach in principle, as had been urged upon it by Sequana. What it did instead was to reject the proposed counterfactual on the basis that Sequana hadn't advanced a case or reduced evidence to establish that it would, in fact, have paid a dividend of a lesser amount. So there was an evidential gap, if you like. And really, the sort of points to note that come out of this is that whether a defendant is able to reduce its liability by reference to a counterfactual lawful transaction that could and would otherwise have taken place remains, in principle at least, up for grabs in future cases. However, evidentially, it's going to be extremely difficult Plus, as a matter of the policy behind Section 423, it's very difficult to see why it would be justified and why the court would want to or tolerate uh, engaging in a sort of investigation of expensive and time-consuming hypothetical scenarios. Well, thank you both Richard and Anna for the discussion of BAT and Sakana. That case certainly raises some Uh, technical points of company law and indeed insolvency law, not least a detailed analysis of the very nature and characteristics of dividends, which could be said to be a fundamental aspect of company law. I am Stephen Hausman. I am your host for this podcast series. I'd like to give my thanks to both Richard and Anna and also to Akash Sonecha, junior tenant in Chambers, for his assistance in research, Lucy Smith, as always, in the production of this podcast. Please do join me next week for episode eight, when I'll be talking to James Collins, QC, and Jeremy Breyer, and we shall be discussing the FCA test case, dealing with various principles and policy wordings around business interruption as triggered by the COVID-19 pandemic. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you.